passage is in the form of a question that you'll hear all throughout the sermon. And it's this, what have you done? That's the title of the message. What have you done? You can put that up there so they can see it. There we go. When I say something really slow twice, I'm trying to give them a cue back there. What have you done? See that? You see, it sounds like I'm being theatrical, but I'm, I'm trying to be patient. What have you done? Um, I'll explain that title here in a moment. There, there's an old high school tradition um, that, that involves having your classmates sign your yearbook at the end of the year. I don't know if kids do that anymore. But did anyone ever participate in that tradition? Okay, all right. <clears throat> of course, high schoolers would write all kinds of profound things in yearbooks, right? I can't mention some of them. Um, but I love sitting by you in math class. Have a great summer. See you at the swimming pool. Lilas, L-Y-L-A-S, love you like a sister. One of the most popular things for high school students to say to each other, even in their yearbooks, was this. Don't ever change. Of all the foolish things a teenager could tell another teenager, they're going to say, just freeze the frame right there. When you're 16, act like you're 16 for the rest of your life. Don't ever change, 16-year-old. You stay right where you're at. You're at the prime of life, the most wise you could ever be. I'd venture to say that's probably bad advice. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've grown beyond what I was like when I was 16 years old. Praise God. And of course, all of us, some of you are under 16, some of you are just over 16, some of you are 16, But most of us in here tonight have changed quite a bit since we were 16. At least physically. Hair changes. Weight changes. Skin changes. We learn new things. We we meet new people. We go to different places. We experience different things. I mean, with all of that stuff combined, you can't help it. You're going to change. And of course, you hope that over time, that change is not just physical, but spiritual as well. As Christians, we're to be changing more and more into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. God's plan between now and eternity for His children is that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit as He attempts to change us to be more like Christ. But, why do some Christians stop changing? They get older in age, but they don't really grow more mature in Christ. Whether it's that they stop growing altogether or, or if it's just one or two areas of their life where change just ceases or just never occurs in the first place. Why does that happen? 
Why does a spouse stop changing and growing in their marriage? Why does a parent stop changing in the way they approach their child? Why does a teenager struggle to make changes in their life? Why does a pastor or a spiritual leader stop changing and growing? Why do you stop changing? If it's God's plan for us to cooperate with the Spirit of God, to grow more and more into the image of Christ from glory to glory, why do we stop? I think I could answer that with a lot of obvious answers. Maybe you stop reading the Word. Maybe you stop applying the sermons you hear. Maybe you no longer fellowship with God's people or even attend church very faithfully anymore. Maybe a Christian could get bitter and angry and close their heart off to the truth. Maybe a disciple of Christ could go through a very deep valley and trial and they can't reconcile how that makes sense in their mind and they just quit on God. Maybe some just love their sin. And they say yes to their sin and so they just start grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit of God altogether and over time want nothing to do with becoming more like Christ. We could go on with possible reasons for why someone doesn't change. But what I want to do tonight is focus on one particular reason why people don't change or stop changing. Why they don't grow or why they stop growing. And it involves this, how we respond when we're confronted with our sin. How we respond when we're confronted with that area of our life that needs changed or challenged or growth. How we respond determines how we grow. This is where the title of our sermon comes in. Because there's a single question that is asked in the book of Genesis eight times. And it's the question, what have you done? It's a direct confrontation to somebody who just sinned. There's an article called Dodging the Question that helped me discover this phrase in the book of Genesis. I knew once I read it, I wanted to study it and dive into it. And I have a chance to do that tonight. The phrase is... Translated a few different ways in English, but in the original Hebrew, it's the same all eight times. And it's made up of just two words. Mazot asith. That's, that's the word in Hebrew. Mazot asith. And it means basically, what have you done? Or what is this that you have done? For the first seven times that God's people are asked this question in the book of Genesis, they don't respond in the right way. But the eighth time is different. Now, I don't know for certain if the number eight is intentional. God knows. No man knows. God knows. But the number eight is often a number of new creation or recreation in Scripture. In the New Testament, Jesus is born on the first day of the new week, the eighth day. The sons were circumcised when? On the eighth day of the week. How many people were saved in the ark from God's judgment? There were eight. I don't know if that makes any difference or not. But I know on the eighth occasion, and there's only eight of them in Genesis where we have this question, Mazot Asith, what have you done? Only on the eighth occasion did God's people respond as they should. If you brought your Bibles tonight, I want you to take this journey with me. We're not going to put the scripture on the screen. I think it's going to be 
healthier in this message for you to follow along in, in the Bible. If you brought that on your phone or whatever, I think we need to see this with our eyes on our laps, in our hands. And we're going to trace all eight instances where this question is asked. We'll see eight different responses, seven bad, one good. And I want you to evaluate each one of these responses and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, is this how I am responding when I'm confronted with my sin? Genesis chapter 3 verse 13 gives us the first instance. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? There it is. And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. The first instance is Genesis 3.13 from God to Eve after she sinned. And Eve's response is simple. It's blame shifting. Blame shifting. God asked the man first, Adam, what happened? Well, you gave me this woman, God. Then he asked the woman, Eve, what happened? Well, the serpent deceived me, God. And this happens all the time in human life, doesn't it? We're caught in our sin. And what's our very human instinct to blame shift almost immediately? Well, someone else let me down. Well, someone treated me poorly. Well, I didn't agree with that policy in the first place. Well, I didn't have any other choice. Someone else led me down that path. It's how I was raised. It was my biology. It was my family. It was my school. It was my lack of opportunity. You shift blame. It's always someone else's fault. So the very first time when this question is asked, there's blame shifting. Let's look at the second instance. Turn to Genesis 4. In verse 10. Here we have the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4 verse 10. And he said, here's that Hebrew phrase, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And watch Cain's response. And Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth. And from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. God asked Cain, what have you done? And what did Cain do? He complained. Cain's angry, of course, because the Lord accepts Abel's offering and not his own. So Cain rose up and killed his brother. After which God asked him, what have you done? And instantly Cain started complaining to the Lord. God was given, he even said earlier, sin is crouching at the door. This is your opportunity to change. This is your opportunity to say, I'm sorry. It was me. I confess. But instead of doing that, Cain started complaining about being treated unfairly. That's another human tendency when we're confronted with our sins. We complain and think that we've been dealt the short end of the stick. Who cares about our sin? We we can't stop thinking about how the consequences for our sin are unbearable. 
and more than we deserve. So we pout and we whine and we resort to self-pity or even bitterness, just like Cain did, even though we're the guilty ones. Let's look at the third time this question is asked, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. To look at verses 18 through 20, and we're going to study Father Abraham, as we call him. He made a big mistake of lying. When he was confronted about it, he didn't, didn't handle it very well. Look at verse 18 through 20. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what, here's the Hebrew phrase, what is this that thou hast done unto me? Same exact phrase, translated a little bit different English. Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Here was Abraham's response. You might not see it in the text, but it's implied. He just left. He just left. Watch here. Abraham lied to Pharaoh, told him that Sarah was his sister instead of being honest and saying that she was his wife. Then when Abraham was presented with this sin, with that question, what have you done? Abraham simply walks away. Now, now yes, we see that, that he was ordered to leave by Pharaoh, but notice that there, there, there's no record of him confessing. He doesn't return the dowry that he was given. There's no acknowledgement that indeed he did deceive Pharaoh. He simply just walks away. And isn't that sometimes what we do when we're caught in our sin? Now, obviously, I hope you can understand in all of these instances I'm mentioning, these were God's people who had actually sinned. They were not being falsely accused. There are some instances where Christians are falsely accused. And in those moments, sometimes the best thing to do is be quiet and walk away. But here Abraham was in the wrong. And isn't this a familiar refrain when we're caught in our sin? We just walk out the door. We're through. We're not listening anymore. We're not going to have another hard talk. We're not going to deal with it any longer. We're confronted with our sin, an area in which we're in the wrong, but we're sick and tired of hearing about it. So we just leave. We don't confess, we don't talk about it, we don't request prayer. We just walk away. It happens in businesses all the time. Confronted by the boss, and the employee says, okay, see ya. As though that is some kind of like awesome way to deal with conflict. It's called escapism. People do it in marriage all the time. Kids walk away from their parents all the time. Trying to run from our problem, but never admitting our problem. There's a fourth instance that involves Abraham lying for the second time. Turn to Genesis chapter 20. This Hebrew phrase shows up again. This is the fourth time it's going to show up. Genesis 20 verse 9. Genesis 20 verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, here it is. What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? 
And Abraham said, well, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will slay me for my wife's sake. He was confronted again, this time by another foreign dignitary named Abimelech, again about his wife, again he lies, again his deception is revealed. And how did he respond this time? He rationalized his lie. Well, well, you know, Abimelech, that, that, that your people, they're not Christians. They don't love God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And isn't that what we're tempted to do when we're caught in, when we're caught in our sin? We rationalize too. I want to say this and I want you to catch it because it's true. We're not rational creatures nearly so much as we are rationalizing creatures. We like to think that we're all just very clear and we're very logical and, and, and we always just input all the facts and all the right material and we come to all the right conclusions and if only other people were as rational as we are. But that's not how the human psyche works. We rationalize what we already think and think we're rational. It's called confirmation bias. We find just the right narrative to confirm our way of seeing the world. That's why it's very, very hard to change sometimes because there's so many different ways to rationalize the things that we say and do. We can figure out how to explain just about anything away. And notice here that Abraham is rationalized, uh, rationalizing his, his sin by saying, Abimelech, what did you expect? These people, he said, here in your kingdom, they'd kill me. They can't be trusted. They don't even fear the Lord. Have you ever had, ever had it when you try to confront someone in their sin and then you end up walking away from it and you think in your, in your mind, why am I the bad guy now? Because that's what happens so often when we're confronted by our sin. We make other people the problem, not us. This is a clever way of rationalizing why we did what we did. So far the question, what have you done, has been asked four times. We've seen four wrong responses. Blame shifting, complaining, leaving, and rationalizing. Look at the fifth. Look at the fifth. Genesis 26. We're going to read a few verses about Isaac, Abraham's son. And you're going to see that the... Fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. Parents, be careful. What you do is heard and seen by your kids. And when they repeat it, don't be surprised. Genesis 26, verse 7. Well, look at verse 6. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Now verse 7. And the men of the place asked him of his wife. Does this sound familiar? And he said, she's my sister. It worked for dad, it must work for me. For he feared to say, she's my wife. Lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebecca. Because she was fair to look upon. And it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window and saw and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebecca, his wife. Elizabethan English, that doesn't mean playing basketball. Verse 9. And Abimelech called Isaac. And said, Behold, of a surety, she is thy wife. And how saidest thou, she is my sister? Isaac said unto him, Because I said, lest I die for her. Here's the Hebrew phrase in verse 10. And Abimelech said, What is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lied with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought 
uh, guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people saying, he that toucheth this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land, receiving the same year an hundredfold. This is another interesting response. I would call it silence. After Abimelech asked him that question, he just goes about his business. Now, now like Abraham, he had already argued in verse 7. We read it. He said, well, they might kill me. He argued again in verse 9. Well, if I didn't do this thing, I would have died. But after the question is asked, what have you done? There's no record of him saying anything else. Just silence. He hears it and he's out of the door. And this is another way we deal with sin when it's revealed to us. La, 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 la. I can hear you, but I'm not listening. You give the appearance of agreement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Really? Yeah. I'm going to think about that. And then all of a sudden you're gone. Nothing else is said or done. You don't want to confront it or argue about it. So you just passively, and I should say hypocritically, comply. You remain silent and you fake compliance if that's what will get you out of the conversation the quickest. Now, silence is okay when you're being falsely accused. Jesus taught us that. He didn't say a word to his accusers when he was on the cross. But silence is not okay when you're being confronted with your sin. Silence is often the go-to technique of what I call peace fakers. Peacemakers love to talk it out. Peace breakers love to scream it out. Peace fakers like to listen, nod their head, and walk away and then talk about it behind your back. Silent when they're confronted because they don't like confrontation. They just don't want to deal with it. And so listen, there are marriages that go on for decades without spouses changing in certain areas. You know why? They won't talk about it. You hearing me? There's teenagers and God wants to do a work in your life. But every time your parents come to you with something, that something, whatever that is for you, you don't want to talk about it. You shut down. When other adults talk to you about it, you can't do that because you want to appear to be respectful. And so you shake your head. Mm -hmm, Yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. And then you walk away, take your phone out of your pocket and text your friend. Can you believe what Miss Taryn just told me? I'm right in your lane tonight. Turn to chapter 29. Sixth occasion this question is asked. Verse 25 and verse 26, Genesis 29, verse 25 and 26. This is the familiar story of Laban and Jacob. And Laban tricked Jacob. You remember this story, church? Gave him the wrong daughter. Gave him Leah. Leah loves this story. Our Leah Deaton loves this story. Verse 29, verse 25, or chapter 29, verse 25. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said unto Laman, here's the Hebrew phrase. What is this thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? Look at Laban's response. It must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. What's this? It's making excuses. 
And the excuse, watch church, is of a certain kind. Laban appeals to the local custom. And he basically says, it's okay because this is how everyone does things around here. And we do the same thing, let's be honest. Oh, you don't understand, pastor. This is how everyone dresses when they're my age. Pastor, you don't understand. Everybody listens to this and watches this and goes there and drinks this. Pastor, you don't understand. These are the kind of cutthroat things you have to do to get ahead. You live behind a pulpit your whole life. I'm in the real world. These are the kind of things you have to do to make it in corporate America. Oh, pastor, you don't understand. This is how things have always worked in my family. That's what Laban says. He makes excuses. It is not so done in our culture to give the younger instead of the older. That's just not the way we do it, bud. Because of that, I have a right to deceive you. I have a right to lie to you. I have a right to send you to have sexual relationships with someone you don't even desire. What a cruel dad to send his daughter to that. And he makes excuses. Turn to chapter 31. Because now the tables are turned. We'll see another Jacob-Laban conflict. But now Jacob has left and found a way to be successful. He's, He's multiplied his flocks. He's left with abundance. And and Laban does not like it. This is where we see the question asked for a seventh time. Genesis 31, verse 26. And Laban said to Jacob, here it is. What hast thou done? That thou hast stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captive taken with the sword. Wherefore didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me and didst not tell me that I might have sent thee away with mirth and with songs, with tabret and with harp and hast not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Thou hast now done foolishly in so doing. He goes on, but look down in verse 37 at Jacob's response. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. For I said, peradventure thou wouldest taken by force thy daughters from me. I call this response counter-accusations. Now, you're going to notice in verse 31, and in so many of these, you could actually make the case that, that the motivating, what was motivating the inability to acknowledge their sin was fear. One was afraid of Pharaoh, one was afraid of Abimelech, or one's afraid of Laban, one's afraid of losing something they love. So so we get the idea, don't we, that when we we fear people instead of God, we do dumb things. Are you hearing me? When people are big and God is small, we lie. We exaggerate. We gossip. We throw people under the bus. We complain. We criticize. But get this. Jacob gets an accusation from Laban. And this is so often the case when we get an accusation. What do we come back with? A counter-accusation. Jacob essentially says, well, 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 Laban, maybe you're right. But I want you to know something. You're worse than me. I had no choice because, because think of all the things you would have done to me, buddy. 
You've already proven you're a bad guy. You don't have character. And so you know why I did what I did? Because you're a punk. See, we quickly turn back in offense on the one who's bringing up the fence to us. The modern term for this is called victimization. God free us of victimization. You're confronted with how you've sinned or how you've messed up. And your default response is to think of ways in which the person confronting you is worse than you are. You might not have any idea how hard it was for them to talk to you in the first place about this. To confront you about this in the first place. How many times they prayed before they talked to you. How nervous they were for three or four or five days before they brought you into their office. Collateral damage because of this talk. You might have no idea how they felt when they did this. But all you can feel is pride. You take it so personal. And you don't like the way that what they're saying makes you feel. And so what our default response is, is if they're going to make me feel this way, then I'm going to make them feel this way. Because I'm not the only guilty party here. Tragic thing about that is when you're going back and forth with the one who confronts you, nothing gets accomplished. And now no change happens. Married couples, you ever experienced that? A spouse confronts you. Hey, where were you? Hey, what's on your phone? Hey, why are you distant? Hey, would you consider like not working anymore overtime? Hey, why has your attitude been bad? And what rises up in us? Usually not a spirit of humility. We usually don't say, you know what? I just want to clear off the spot and say, thank you for telling me about my sin. My goodness, I prayed for you to come my way today with that word. What do we say, married couples? We we just puff up. And instantly here, God did create us with this this bit of self-preservation. Keep ourselves alive. But, but, but that amygdala, that little walnut-shaped thing in your brain that, that kicks that self-preservation into gear and keeps you alive, like when you're walking by a rattlesnake, well, that also fires off when, you're, when your uh, spouse confronts you about your sin. And so immediately your brain's telling you, preserve yourself, protect yourself, fight, fight for your territory, go down swinging, call them a hypocrite. We love to use that. Seven times God's people get this question. What have you done? And seven times they respond poorly. Here, hear me. You don't even need to take a psych class to, um, uh, to understand human psychology. You can. There's nothing wrong with that. You just need to read the book of Genesis. I mean, isn't this all the ways that we deflect our mistakes and our sin? As I read this in that journal, I begin to study it for myself. You know what I saw? I saw me. I said, wow, I'm Jacob. I'm Laban. I'm Abraham. I'm Isaac. I'm Eve. Question, you don't have to answer out loud, but question, have you seen yourself? 
Thank God there's an eighth time this is mentioned in Genesis. And this is when they finally get it right. Genesis 44. I read verse 15, I'll explain the story, and then I'll, I'll read the response. Verse 15 of Genesis 44, the story of Joseph. He's confronting his brothers after they appeared to him for the first time in many years, after throwing him in slavery. Verse 15, and Joseph said unto them, here is the Hebrew phrase, what deed is this that ye have done? What ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine. So, so what's going on? I'm, I'm not going to take for granted that everybody knows the story of Joseph. A real quick summary. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers because his brothers got jealous because Joseph's dad treated him better. That was no mystery. It was the truth. Joseph's dad wasn't a great father. And he played favorites. And anytime we play favorites, parents, please hear me. Anytime we play favorites, it, it, it produces problems. Even if you do it unintentionally. Even if you're like, nah, me and that kid, we just get along better. Our personalities see better eye to eye. Mama's going to deal with that one. Daddy's going to deal with that one. No, both of you brought that one into the world. So you don't divide your kids who, who relates to you better. Are you with me? That's free information. That's free sermon preaching tonight. But that's really good. That'll help you to understand. Mama, when he messes up, you deal with that because he responds better to you. No, Daddy, how about you learn to deal with all of them? I, thought, I think that's right. This is why I stick to my notes. I don't know where I was. Okay, the parents didn't parent right. They played favorites. Joseph's brothers got jealous. So they were going to go kill him. Instead of killing him, one of the brothers named Judah spoke up. So let's just sell him into slavery. So they sold him to slavery, dipped his, his robe of many colors into blood so they could cover it up and say he got killed by an animal. And the story seems to be over in their mind. Well, Joseph says like, I don't know how many times, but a lot of times at the beginning of his story, God was with him. And when God's with you, it doesn't matter who sells you out. It doesn't matter who betrays you. It doesn't matter who disappoints you. It doesn't even matter if you lose every brother or sister you've ever known. If God is with you, you can succeed. And Joseph did. And he succeeded so much that over the course of years, he became the second in charge in Egypt. That's where his brothers come back into the story because they hadn't seen each other for decades. They were miles away, but there was a famine in the land and the only available food supply was in Egypt. And guess who was in charge of the food supply? Brother Joseph, the one they sold out. They didn't know that. In fact, even when they came and saw Joseph for the first time, they didn't recognize him. But Joseph recognized them. And what Joseph did, interestingly is he didn't reveal himself to his brothers the first time. You guys know this story? I'm telling the truth. He waited for a while because he wanted to test his brothers. And the last test he would give them was right here in Genesis 44. And it was very interesting how he did it. He was going to frame them for theft. Are you hearing me? He was going to frame them for theft to see if they were truly repentant. So he had his servants follow this. You need this. He had his servants put food in his brother's sack. Like normal, they were doing that for everybody. But then he also slipped some silver, valuable silver in his brother's sack as well. Framed them like they stole it. He sent them on their way. After they left, got down the road, he sent his servants to find them and asked them to empty out their sacks. Because word has it, they've stolen some silver from Joseph. 
And sure enough, when Benjamin emptied his sack, that poor little Benjamin, the silver fell out. Could you imagine their faces? Now, I need you to get this. It's, it's important to know why Joseph used silver here. There's some connection. Do you remember the price for Joseph when they sold him out in chapter 37? It was silver. They sold Joseph for silver. Now he means to trap them with silver. And the whole plan is to get them to reflect on what they did all those many years ago. Here's what Joseph's thinking. You left me to rot in the pit and sold me off into slavery. You hung your brother completely out to dry. Now what are you going to do this time with your other brother, Benjamin? You had this decades ago with me. This is what he's thinking. You were jealous. You threw me into a pit. Then you sold me off for a little bit of silver. Now you have another brother named Benjamin who's on the verge of being killed or at best put into servitude just like me because of silver. What will you do? Joseph is appealing to their conscience. He wants to see if they can make this connection between the two brothers and come come to their senses and how they've hurt Joseph. So when they're brought back to give an answer to Joseph, they're asked that question. Mazotha Seath, what, what have you done? And finally someone gets it right. Finally, when someone answers the question because they're confronted by their sin, they don't blame shift. They don't complain. They don't walk away. They don't rationalize. They don't remain silent. They don't make excuses. And they don't even give a counter accusation. Instead, one of the brothers by the name of Judah speaks up in verse 16 and gives the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. We won't read it all. We'll read one verse. It tells it all. Verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. And behold, we are my Lord's servants. Both we and he, Benjamin, also with whom the cup is found. It's very likely that Judah is not confessing the silver cup. He knew they weren't guilty of that at all. It's likely that he has figured out that somehow God is punishing them. Are you hearing me? He's making that connection. He's thinking, I know my little brother didn't steal this cup. But he has finally figured out by way of his God-given conscience, God is up to something. God has found us out. So when he says our iniquity has been found out, he's not just thinking, oh, Benjamin, our little brother. How could you do this guy? You're so ornery. No. He's thinking God has somehow in this mysterious way placed this silver in our bag. And and this guilty conscience that we've lived with for 20 years has finally come out. God, he said, is now repaying us for our sins that we did all those years ago to our brother Joseph when we sold him out for silver. What is Judah do here? He acknowledges his sin and he owns it. He doesn't protest, defend himself. He says, I am guilty. When's the last time you said something like that? To one another. In a, in a, in a, a quiet moment of prayer to God. When is the last time you said something like this? I have no one to blame. I will not throw a fit. 
I will not protest. I will not accuse. I will not rationalize. I will not make excuses. I will not run from this. I will not remain silent. I will not become the victim. What I did was wrong. And by God's grace, I've seen that. I plead guilty. That's what Judah did here. But watch here. Acknowledging his wrong wasn't the only thing he did. He took one step further and he made things right with Joseph, the one that he offended. Follow this. I know there's a lot of distractions. Stay with me. Joseph wanted to hold Benjamin as slave. We can read the rest of the story. He wanted to hold Benjamin as slave until they were willing to bring Joseph's father to him. They still didn't even know this was Joseph. But, but what did Judah do? He owned it himself. He didn't let Benjamin take the fall. See, Judah knew, if you, know the, if you know the Joseph story, Judah knew that it was him back in chapter 37 that had engineered the whole plan of selling off Joseph when the brothers were envious and spiteful. And, and because it was his idea, now he takes ownership and he leads the way in repentance. Looks at what, look what he says to Joseph at the end of the chapter in verse 33. Now, therefore, I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad a bondman to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brethren. Judah's saying, I'll do whatever it takes to make it right. Look, sir, if I go back, my father's going to freak out. It says that in the, in the verses above this. He doesn't say exactly those words, but that's what he means. His health cannot handle this. If we go back without Benjamin... And he hears Benjamin's now a slave, like Joseph was a slave. It's going to break him. So please, let Benjamin go and I'll stay. I'll give my life. I'll be your slave. And this is how you change, friend. You own your sin. And you do whatever you have to do to make it right. Turn to Luke 15 as we close. prodigal son has take his, taken his dad's inheritance money. He has wasted it on riotous living. He's down to nothing. He's begging a farmer to help him with money. He's eating pig slop. And look at, down at verse uh, 17. And when he came to himself, would you look up here for just a moment? You'll never change until you come to yourself. You know what we could say? We say it this way. When he came to his senses. When he woke up. When his life got so hard. Because of where his mistakes led him. That he couldn't make any more excuses. He couldn't lie his way out. Because he didn't want to. He woke up. He was startled. Verse 17. He said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? You see what he did there? He, he was realistic about his situation. Watch me. He could have minimized it. He could have said, I'm just having a bad day. No, he literally said, I'm dying of hunger. 
I, I, I'm not on a diet. I'm not having a rough day. It's not a personality cork. It's not just a bad habit. I'm dying here. 18. I will arise and go to my father. And will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. No blame shifting here. No denying here. No rationalizing here. He gets even more honest about a situation in verse 19. I'm not even worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. In other words, I'm ready to accept the consequences. I'm not going to admit my sin and try to dodge how life gets hard because of consequences that come as a result of sin. I know I've made this bed. I'm going to sleep in it. I'm not going to complain in it. I'm not going to pout in it. I'm not going to shift blame in it. I've made this bed. I'm sleeping in it. And then look at the first three words of verse 20. And he arose. It's one thing to own your sin. To say, okay, I'm guilty. It's another thing to make it right. It wasn't enough to the prodigal son to say, you know what, I'm going to get my life together. I'm not going back home because, well, I got too much pride for that. I'll figure out a better job. I'll figure out my way in the world. But I know I've screwed up. I know I've messed this up. No. And he arose. Here's where a lot of Christian brothers and sisters are are caught. This is why they won't change. Because they are stuck between acknowledging their sin and making their sin right. That's where they're stuck. They can say, I'm guilty. But they don't want to say, I'm sorry. They can say, I'm wrong. But they don't want to have the hard conversation with the person they wronged. They can say, okay, okay, I get it. You're right. I'm wrong. But they don't want to stop drinking. Or stop having sex. Or stop looking at pornography. Or stop screaming at their kids. Or stop lying to their parents. Because making it right is a whole nother level of repentance. Your sin's not just in between you and God. It's in between you and your church. You and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Whose testimony you're supposed to be preserved. It's in between you and your spouse. It's in between you and your boss. It's in between you and your family. It's not just you and God. You don't just get to come to an altar and say, I'm sorry. No, there has to be a part of your story. There has to be a verse 20. And he arose. There has to be that. What keeps us from that? Fear. I'm scared of what people are going to think. What keeps us from that? Pride. Well, I don't want to publicly admit I was wrong. Because I've said I was right for so long, so loudly. That it's going to make me look like an idiot. I'm burdened tonight. In my own life and in your life. How many Christians have some areas of their life 
that have not grown in years. I am, I am torn up about that all day long. I am so, so burdened about marriages, including mine sometimes, that just stall out because spouses don't want to talk about it, don't want to deal with it, don't want to own it, want to make excuses, want to rationalize. I spent some time on an altar today in here Telling God, I'm sorry for these areas of my life that the Holy Spirit began to target this afternoon. I prop myself up sometimes with my external holiness because in some ways I, I have this right and that right and this right and that right. But me and the Holy Spirit, they know the things I haven't let him touch in a while. We know those things. You might not know them. You might think that pastors have it all together. But there's some things about my attitude sometimes, my words sometimes, my perspective sometimes, my, 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 my responsibility as a father and as a husband and a leader of this church. There's some things that I have refused to let the Holy Spirit put his hand on. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. I want to give a counter accusation. Is that you tonight? Does there happen to be an area of your life right now where there are no trespassing signs? And your inactivity, unwillingness to change, but willingness to argue about it, says to God, you're not welcome here. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your finances, in your health, At work, at church, with people at work or church? Is there any area of your life that God has been trying to change for a really long time, but when confronted about it, you blame shift? You complain. You walk away. You rationalize. You remain silent and fake compliance. You make excuses. You give a counter accusation. And after a while, people stop confronting you. Are you hearing me? And you start feeling really confident. Well, if no one's talking to me about my sin, I must not be that big of a sinner. No, they stopped talking to you about it a long time ago. Because when they tried to talk to you about it, it didn't go very far. If that's the case for you, the sermon is one more opportunity by God's grace for you to own your sin. And not just own it, but make it right. One more time, God is asking you, what have you done? And you understand he's not asking you for his information. He already knows. He's asking to give you an opportunity to humble yourself, admit your sin, and make things right. I'm burdened. You cannot keep pretending like your sin doesn't exist. Because just like it did with Joseph's brothers all those years, it will continue to haunt you for the rest of your life. You'll hurt a lot of people, including yourself, so long as you aren't willing to confront what needs to be changed in your life. 
But here's the good news. Hear me. Own your sin. Make it right. And Jesus will take it from you. That's, that's Christianity. Did you know that this account in Genesis 44, where Judah's willing to be a slave in Benjamin's place, is the first time in all of Scripture that one man offers his life in exchange for another? Did you know that? I don't think it's a stretch to make this connection. If Judah, who's a guilty sinner, was able to give his life as a substitute that Benjamin might go free. How much more can the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who has never sinned, give his life for us so that we wouldn't have to be slaves anymore? Judas says, for the sake of my brother, would you bring the punishment upon me? And Jesus said the same thing. I will hang on a cross. I will be literally dead so that my people, God's children, do not have to walk in slavery so they can be set free. You acknowledge your sin. You say, I'm willing to do whatever I can to make it right on a vertical and a horizontal level. And God says, that's all I needed. That's all I needed. You own it. I'll take it. You own it. I'll take it. But if you pretend you don't have it, you have to live with it for the rest of your life. And it will eat you alive. And so I'm telling you, stop pretending tonight. Because I bet you that the majority of us aren't Judah. I bet the majority of us are Jacob. And Laban. And Isaac. And Abraham. And Eve. God help us. When he confronts us, what have you done? He'll do that through the word. He'll do that through people. When he does that, for you to look to heaven and own it and make it right. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.